History Lecture 56, Rabbi Blyweis, we're winding down toward Korban Beis Mikdash, the second temple's destruction. The, um, that's not an exciting thing, even though my voice, my voice is full of uh, readiness, but uh, it's a very sad day. I, I, I get uh, affected by these things. I don't know about you. For me, I, I, I do feel like I re- re-experience these, uh, these events every, uh, every time I go through them. The, uh, the three wealthy families who famously are here and they're uh, over Israel, they love Jews and they're there to help Jews and they are central near the end because the Jews are, as we said, already experiencing every manifestation of the klala, of the curse that's spelled out in the Torah and of course, most resoundingly, they're poor, they're destitute, they're starving. Um, so these three families really are in the right place there. They're in a place where there isn't a person. They really are the people. Uh, one of the families, uh, presumably, is familiar to a lot of you. Uh, that's the family of Kalba Savua. Kalba Savua, maybe you know their daughter, the daughter of Kalba Savua. That would be Rachel Eishes Rabbi Akiva. So we're going to be hearing about her, certainly. But, um, but the family themselves, on their own, on their own terms, were, were an important, well-known family. Uh, the name Kalva Savua was darshan by Chazal. Kalva, they went into their house as guests, hungry like dogs, because kal- Kalva is like Kelev, um, and they left Savei, Sveim, satiated Savua. Kalba Savua, because they were so famously generous with their, with their money, with opening their home to everybody. Um, they also descended, according to one shot on their name, from the great, who would Kalba Savua logically descend from? Kalev Ben Yefunen, from the, uh, from the times of the, uh, of the Torah. The other family, the second family is Ben Tzitzis HaKeses, who descends from Avner Ben Ner, if you remember Shaul's general that David mourned his death. Uh, the third is the family of Naktimon ben Gurion, who was one of these individuals in history who, when he davens, the rain, follow, the rain falls. He also, after the rain, the sun came out and shone for him, especially in response to his tefillah, Kadesh Baruch made a nace. He's one of three people that this, in history that the sun, the sun shone especially for him, the other two being... Yoshua and before Yoshua, Moshe Rabbeinu. So, so the Gemara says there were three people in history for whom the sun shone, especially. That's Moshe, Yoshua, and Naktimon ben Gurion. And, and we'll, we'll hear about, uh, we'll, especially the first and the third, Kaaba Savua, that, that family will play a role in history. We understand. Yeah, we're good. Um, and Naktimon ben Gurion is also going to come up uh, in, in poignant ways. Now, um, yeah, yeah. So, th- so this is this, we're setting the scene before the uh, the korban. And um, interesting, there is a shot to connect Naktimon um, with with, with um, some say that he had a brother named Yosef, uh, and his father was named Matisyahu. And Yosef ben Matisyahu was another central figure from this period. He's known, though, perhaps to most of you, by his um, by his Greek Roman name because he was renamed instead of Yosef ben Matisyahu, he was called Flavius Josephus. Yosef becomes Josephus, as it were, and he's considered really one of the first his, not the not the first historian, but one of the early historians in the world. What is a historian after all? It's somebody who sets about writing an account of the events, not just of his time, but everything known heretofore of his time. And Josephus does start uh, several hundred years before his time to try to do an assessment of the period in which he lived. There is no history, ours included, that's unbiased. You always show your bias through what you emphasize, from what you ignore. It's, it's totally subjective. We're trying as best we can. I'm sure I'm guilty on all kinds of levels, but to the best of my ability to try to teach those aspects of history that are more central and more important from a Torah perspective. Um, Josephus was not, and we're going to talk about him, and I'm going to try to give you a sense, because he informs a lot of our, uh, the discussion. We have Chazal, we have the Talmud, we have the other sources, uh, the Midrashim, 
but these are not classic history works as such. Chazal are not just interested, even though history is part of the story, it's really incidental. Most of their interest is to teach us halacha, hashkafa, how to be a mensch, how to be a human being in the world, uh, and they convey that in a number of ways that sometimes they deliberately take liberties with the telling a truthful story. Again, what is a truthful story is, is, up in, is, is, is subject to speculation. Even people, I mean here I'm gonna to refer to, to illustrate the point, I'm gonna to refer to a Japanese, a famous Japanese movie from the 1950s named Rashomon. I mean, anything, I've anybody heard, here? Akira Kurosawa was considered a Japanese master director of all that kind of stuff. He also made Ron, right? right? He also made Ron. That's right. That was the end of his career. That was, that was 1985. But it, early on in, the, in uh, 1953, maybe, he made an interesting movie. And I only, I'm just using this to illustrate the point of what the limitations of history. The movie is clever piece, has four protagonists, four characters who experience well, it's a little bit strange. They're all involved in, in, in a series of encounters and episodes, including murder, in a forest area. And what you watch in the movie, it unfolds as you realize it, is the experience recounted from each of their perspectives. And it's a radically different view each time you see what happens. Because each person brings to it their own, their own biases and sensibilities and whatever they, whatever they see in the events. And of course, they usually paint themselves in a flattering way. Josephus is definitely no exception to that. We're gonna, there's, there are times where it's, it's, you just want to smirk. You just want to you know, giggle because you say, okay, oh, okay, Josephus, in terms, in terms of um, taking him seriously. I mean, definitely is a self-aggrandizing individual. Um, and he distorts the record. Wait, to what's the, his big book called? Um, Antiquities, probably. But he has a couple books. Jewish Wars also. Really, the two most cited books. Those are Antiquities <laughs> and Jewish Wars. And he's big for, I've mentioned this before, for the Christian world, too, because he paints a scene of a time that they hold to be very important, even though he neglects to mention one small detail, that there was a Savior who came and redeemed all of humanity. But other than that, he paints a fantastic... Uh, overview of the entire period where Jesus lived. Right. Wait, so that's a, you're saying that's a proof against that? It would seem to be. Yeah. yeah, you missed that part. We had that discussion when we talked about Christianity. No, I was here for that. You were here for that discussion. Yeah, that seems to be a kind of a glaring omission on the, on the part of the historian who claims to give the most important details of the time. Wouldn't you think he'd include the, the, the arrival of the Messiah who saves all of the world? Yeah, maybe that wasn't important. Who knows? Um, maybe he didn't yeah, no, his views were absolutely skewed and not, uh, not classically Jewish. He was evident, uh, evidently a Sadducee, a, a Tzaduki in his, in his writings. And you find that because he emphasizes politics. You know, like the Greek view. That's what the Greeks, that's the Hellenized people. So today, you ask people in the, in the assimilated secular uh, culture, who are the movers and shakers of history? And naturally they think, oh, it's the politicians, it's the military, the top brass in the military. I mean, nowadays in the shallow culture in the West, it's the celebrities too. That's why celebrities can be elected to the politics because it's really all the same thing, it's all entertainment. And, um, and that's how they perceive the world, what we would say is arguably shallow, uh, superficial. Um, Josephus, in terms of describing the Second Temple period, never once mentions the Anshik Nessus Gedola. We here spent a huge amount of time understanding that they are the architects of much of Jewish life as we understand it till today. And that they, don't get a, they, they don't merit a mention in Josephus. He rarely, if ever, uh, refers to Gedola Yisrael, Gedola Torah. Uh, he doesn't refer to concepts like Mesirus Nefesh, which means dedication to the point of self-sacrifice. Uh, that defines so much of Jewish history as far as uh, the traditional Jewish view, and not, not to Josephus. He doesn't mention Hashem, he doesn't really mention Torah per se. Um, like the Tzedukim, he refers to the Prushim as if they're a marginalized group. You know, and, and in fact, I remember learning this initially, it was when I was part of the Reform world, they said, oh look, their world was all fractured and our world is all fractured. Just like we, and they like in a pluralistic way, they like to say there's conservative and orthodox and reconstructionist and reform. And there are you know, all these different groups. They like to mix the order so like no one is more or less than the others kind of a thing. And so when you, when you learn this, let's say, 
as I, as I remember learning when I worked with Nifty, the reform movement's um, Israel programs branch, they said, oh, so too you have um, Snukim and Prushim and Essenes at the end of the second period, each a different sect, each a different group. Um, but the Prushim were not a sect. Even Josephus admits that they were the mainstream of the Jews. How do we know that? Josephus acknowledges this. For example, I'm going to quote him. The, the Prushim have the multitude on their side. This is the Pharisees. That's the English word for it. Right? The Prushim have the multitude on their side. This was the normative group, what we would call just regular Torah Judaism. Um, he also, Josephus goes on, and he says, he, says um, he admits, as much as he doesn't like the Prushim, he, he does describe them in antiquities. He says they, ha they um, have entirely virtuous conduct. Translated, they have really good midos. Um, in their lives and in their teachings. Um, he goes elsewhere, he writes, they live poorly, they forego delicacies in diet. And think about, from a Tzaduki perspective, they're all about gluttony, all about eat, eating and drinking and being married tomorrow, we're going to die. That was, that was the Tzaduki ethos, Greek style. Uh, so from, from that perspective, um, you know, the, the Prushim were very, very distinct. And Josephus writes about them in really very flattering terms. He says, they follow the dictates of reason. They respect the elderly. They're, they're friendly to others. They exercise harmony, he writes, in Jewish wars. That's his account of this group that, on the one hand, by using the term prushim, it's a, a marginalizing, trivializing kind of a term, but really what he's describing is the mainstream core group of Jews as they were at the end of the Second Temple period. Um, I mentioned he, is, he loves this world and, and, and the aspects of this world. So in reading, Josephus is a fun read. Uh, you have to take it with a grain of salt. He focuses on victory and on power as if these were values. Um, in Chazal, in the Talmud, rarely do we find a discussion of, pe of men in power or, or in military uh, and having military prowess. That's not valued, that's not emphasized. When they're mentioned, they're shadow, shadowy, kind of ephemeral figures, not, not major movers and shakers. Um, he dedicates his work, Josephus dedicates his, uh, his works, Lichvod HaKaiser, the Caesar, which of course makes sense. That's where Kaiser comes from. Kaiser is a variation of Caesar. The Germans, exactly. That's where, that's where the term Kaiser comes from. We saw, we met Julius Caesar. Caesar is like the king of kings. That's the connotation because the Roman Empire uh, literally was, or at least fancied itself to be, the empire of empires. The, what is Josephus? Josephus, his own story was, we're going to see it as, as it unfolds. This is an introduction since he's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's such a major source of, of what we're going to hear. He um, was with the Jews and fought in the Great Revolt until he was captured by the Romans and he completed his, most of his major works in Roman captivity. So on a certain level, he's sort of stuck. What's a guy like that going to do? How's he going to rise to history? Whatever it's going to be, it's got to be flattering or obsequious to the Romans. But how did you even see it? What's that? If he was in captivity, how did you even see it? That was his job. It was, it was a very cushy captivity. He was not persecuted. The Romans, he was there in Rome. And they, they even will we'll hear how he crops up in the story by his own account. He was an advisor to the Romans. He wasn't in prison. So he's writing this. So he, he, he's sort of, he has he's sort of little leeway, little elbow room for, for saying anything negative or nasty about the Romans. He's writing from a quintessentially Roman perspective. How do you manage to be at every, every like, event, though? Uh, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, with, you're, you're, you're two steps ahead of me. I'm just about to get there. He is, I just, on Telstone, I gave, I gave a shir, I, talk, I, I talked before L'Chadodi, and I talked about Chanufa, just this last Shabbos. Um, Chanufa being, well, people translate, modern even is translated as flattery, but really, if you study, if you study the, we talked about Chanufa recently, we saw the whole story with Agrippus I, the famous story in, in, in Sota. Well, Chanufa is a person, a classic Chanufa. Go look at the nine levels that uh, the Rebbe Yonah brings out in Shari Tshuva. So the classic Chanufa is telling a guy who's a sinner, you're great, and your sin's fine, not a problem. It's also a Chil Hashem. It's possibly, according to some post, Kim Yeharek Bal Yavor, somebody has to die and not do it. And Josephus is classically Mechanev, constantly ingratiating himself to the Romans, uh, trying to make them look good, uh, uh, celebrating sin. Um, he says, for example, Titus, 
Titus, who we're going to see destroyed the base of Mikdash or officiated in the destruction. He says, um, and the Romans in general, they never hated the Jews. Oh, oh no, no. They hate the Jews? No, they just destroyed the base of Mikdash. Uh, he said they didn't intend to destroy the base of Mikdash. That's Josephus' account. Um, contrast that with the famous account in the Gemara and Gitin. He absolutely had every intention of destroying it. It's all Asav all over again. Um, yeah. His content is dubious, and it's dubious, meaning it's reason to question a lot of what he has to say, and yet he sometimes is the only source on, on certain, in, in certain, uh, certain stories, including, for example, when I guide Masada and make a point, it's sort of accepted. Well, Josephus wrote it, so it must be true. The reason that it's accepted is because there's no conflicting source, and people want to tell a good story, especially tour guides, so you just assume, oh, well, it's true. But I think there's reason to question almost everything that Josephus is writing, um, even the secular field of historian, Josephus is not taken so seriously because they recognize he's self-aggrandizing. They, they, he's, he's got his own biases. Um, he writes elsewhere, the Romans are heroes. Um, and, then, and then he elsewhere puts down the Jews. He says he, 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 the immoderate violence and intolerable passion, he writes about the Jewish bandits uh, that, that predominates. He's very critical in certain areas. Now, we know ourselves, what does he mean? He's, he's, he's criticizing all Jews. Chazal, the rabbis of Yochanan and Zakkai, they didn't endorse fighting. Josephus never mentions that, but we know that was explicitly true. The rebels, many of them were bad guys. They were Roshaim, but a lot of the Jews were fighting to help Qal Yisrael. And Josephus does not give them that kind of benefit of the doubt. Was uh, this was your, this is, okay, what's that? I mean, I'm, let, let, me, let me say my, my overview and you'll, you'll then comment. Now, when you read Josephus, this is the point that Elon brought up before. Um, Josephus is the classic omniscient narrator. He knows everything. He's been everywhere. Incredibly so. And I'm using the word incredible in the literal, literal sense. It is incredible. Incroyable, they say in French. Right? You just don't believe the guy anymore. Because there's no way that he knows all that. Unless he really is literally omniscient, but he's not God. Somehow he fought everywhere, and <laughs> he fought everywhere. He's also the greatest general that ever was, don't you know? He somehow, every single eyewitness to every single major event in history came and personally reported it to Josephus. Okay, yeah, I believe that. Uh, you know, they were sometimes the sole survivors. Um, <laughs> he, he claims by his own account that he personally assembled and then commanded a force of 60,000 troops. That's formidable. And yet, nowhere else in no other source do we find any indication that Josephus was even a general, not in the Roman archives, not in any other source from the period. So one gets the impression that Josephus is a little inflated in the ego department. The, uh, <clears throat> in wars, don't you know, uh, it was Josephus who, in the book of, in Jewish wars, who prophesied that Vespasian would be king and, uh, Right, and asked that the Jews be given Yavne and its wise men. Nobody knows what I'm talking about? Famous, famous story we're about to tell. No? Not a, not a clue? It's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. But it's like, it's like Josephus cuts Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai out of the picture and inserts his own face instead. That was me, Josephus. Uh, yeah. The, um, he even says he's, he doesn't have any shame. He writes, I far exceed the rabbis in Jewish learning. He writes about himself, and why not? Nobody there is, to, is there to contradict him. Um, now, it's, there's, a, there's a figure historically that's referred to that way back when is referred to as Yosifun, and it's not clear always that we're talking about the same figure. The, book is, the books that, he's, that he, he writes under, had undergone many changes. There have been so many translations in manuscripts. I mentioned before the one bishop in the, uh, in the Dark Ages who inserted the whole piece about Jesus and forgeries and other, other type things. So there's reason to be suspicious about any publication that has Jesus, Josephus' name on it. Um, I mentioned that academics definitely question him, but, I, I, but they're, they're interesting. I, I, when I had a course at Hebrew University in uh, Second Temple History, the professor there pointed out that Josephus is valuable to, secular, to scholars when he talks about incidental technical things that he has little reason to uh, make up. So when it comes to his own actions, the Jewish wars, and he's being obsequious to the Romans, be skeptical. 
But Josephus writes, for example, in great detail about the food that they used to eat, the clothes that they wore, the lifestyle. He describes geographic areas in uh, loving detail. And for example, anybody been to Gamla in the uh, Golan Heights? So he actually describes Gamla, and it's a great thing to do when I'm guiding. I actually just read from Josephus, because he really literally describes that unusual triangularly shaped mountain. And it's unmistakable that that must be the place. There's nothing, there's no other candidate for Gamla in the neighborhood. And, uh, and like that. So those kinds of accounts we can accept, and the others we definitely take with a hefty, not a grain, I would say a big rock of salt. But <coughs> still, and we're not done with Josephus, I'm just giving an introduction because he'll, he'll inform a lot of our discussion. With all the irony of this, Chazal read his books and encouraged others to read his books, and maybe they knew that we would take it with a grain of salt, and we would see Josephus for who he was, and still be able to benefit from what we can learn from him. Rav Sa'adya Gaon, for example, refers to him in his, in his commentary in Sefer Daniel, but it's not just Rav Sa'adya. Rashi refers to him repeatedly. I've got a few sources here in the Gemara Brachos, in Yuma, in Baba Basra. Tosfos refers refer to him, the Ramban does, and many, many others. Uh, the Mechaber, in the Shulchan Aruch, and Orachim says, um, and in describing the kinds of things a person could, is allowed to read on Shabbos, includes Josephus, or Yosifun, as he's referred to, as a legitimate Shabbos read. Ber Hetev there says that we can learn Musr, when describing the history. I think what he means is along the level that we keep emphasizing here. When you identify with, and you put yourself in the scheme of Jewish history, you feel so much more connected, so much more passionate as a Jew. And I think that's what the Ber Hetev has in mind. The Gras says, if you want to understand Chazal, you want to understand Eretz Yisrael, you want to understand the base of Mikdash, you should learn about Josephus. Because he offers a perspective and details that sometimes you wouldn't get elsewhere. So with the good and the bad, we take this in mind, and that's how we're going to approach Josephus too. He's unavoidable, but to be taken with, with extreme uh, criti uh, critical thinking. Ilan? Um, was he... Was his history like popular like 100, 200 years after, or was it only until like... It was not popular. Good question. Was it popular at the time? First of all, we have no way of knowing. You're talking about days before the printing press. Well, in the Gemara, is he mentioned at all? No. He's not mentioned in the Gemara. He's mentioned before she. So that popular is, uh, you know, without the printing press, popularity can't really be measured in terms of bestsellers. Uh, their hand-copied manuscripts, but here's here's some indications that he was certainly read and seen as prominent as a prominent source. Um, many manuscripts exist. Uh, people, again, from the time of the Gaonim, Rishonim, Achronim, learned him. So he was clearly again, and we said there are, there are manuscripts that are copied and recopied. He would probably become much more of a focus under the, as the Christian powers rose in the, in, the, in the fourth century for the reasons that I was describing. Because at least he paints a backdrop of, of, of this time period so that the church fathers can understand what's going on. Um, what makes a popular book in days when most of the populace, I'm not referring to the Jews, but most of the populace themselves are illiterate, right? Uh, well, pop, popular means 10 people read it, that's popular. Right? And they preserved this, so we have it. But they were the ones who were making the decisions for the population. <laughs> We've mentioned before, we've made the point before as we, as we lead into the Chorba Beis Mikdash, that um, there have been many, many small revolts and massacres and conflicts that have led now up to the year 66 in the Common Era, which is described as the beginning of the Great Revolt in Hebrew, the Merid Hagadol. And on some level, you have a classic meeting of the uh, a, a conflict between the cultures of Esav and Yaakov, and it's the eternal enmity that we keep referring to. But it's more than that. It's the it's the fact that both points of view obviate one another, meaning they see past one another. Yaakov being fundamentally in the realm of spirituality, Esav being grounded in the here and now in the physical world. We t I gave you the, it wasn't a mashal, it was an episode, but I thought it was a, a really instructive slice of life about Pontius Pilate collecting the money and using the money to build an aqueduct. And the Jew says, what are you doing taking our hektesh money? It's holy money. You can't build something mundane like an aqueduct. And again, Asaph totally missing the mark in trying to understand spirituality. Uh, the Romans, for their part, they looked at the Jewish people as strange. 
uh, kind of like Haman said, an am mufuzaru mufurad, a dispersed, odd, strange people. They didn't know what to make of them to a large degree. Um, later on, Hadrian will destroy Jerusalem. This is after the Bar Kokhba revolt. And he figures, you know, you pulverize the city. There's no nation that survives the destruction of, the, of, of their capital. They're not going to be around. Uh, their, their, their years, their days are numbered. He can't imagine that there's such a thing as Tyra, that there's a whole way of life, that the Jews can survive even 2,000 years of exile without being centralized about any, in any way, shape, or form. Somehow we could endure and, and endure uh, effectively. Um, that's just out of their worldview. Ilan? We talked about that. The Romans, because Romulus and Remus, Rom, Rom, Romulus and Remus come from Yephis. And so at one point I mentioned the ambiguity. Is that your question, right? Yeah, well, yeah. and then my bigger question was going to be why... And, and I'll finish the thought, then I'll just finish the thought. And that the, 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 they descend from Yephis. It's not clear at what point Asaph came to dominate Rome. Okay. Well, but it's understood, and I refer you to the, um, the parsha a couple weeks ago, that when, when Magdiel, one of the chieftains of Asaph, is identified as Roma. Why doesn't I mean it's, it's really out of our discussion, so I'm going to give you a short answer. I think I could probably say more, but Zachor Yomos Olam, the pasuk says, Jews. Maybe we take it for granted at this point in the, in, in, in the time in, in, in history as the Judeo-Christian uh, mindset sort of dominates the world today. But Jews, once upon a time, were unique in their historical perspective. We relive history yearly. We don't just tell the Pesach story at the, at, to our kids around the table every Pesach, but all of our lives are a testimony of everything that came before. Most cultures in the world are not like that. And as such, they're not going to preserve that kind of a history. They'll have more of a loose, <laughs> ambiguous mythology with some consistent legends. Adarabah, it's actually was striking, and we did this when we learned history. You remember that the um, most cultures in the world, most famously the Gilgamesh myth, but most cultures in the world, in fact, do have some tradition of some kind of flood, which makes sense. Because like, there's certain cataclysms that take place, and I also use this as an example, when Yoshua, when the sun stands still for Yoshua, many, many cultures, not as many, but a lot, many, many cultures do have some vague uh, myth or tradition or recollection of that, which would make sense if they're not mainly, centrally, historically minded, but that there's some vague recollection of such a thing that somewhere it would figure it with a distortion. That's how I would understand it. The Great Revolt breaks out in what's described in the Yerushalmi in Brachos as the Knishta Medarta Bekesari. That's how it's referred to. Knishta uh, is like one of those pastry things that suffer. No, that's something else. Uh, no, Knishta here means either the Beit Knesset or the beginning. Knisha, Knisa, like the beginning of the, of the revolt, of the Medarta Bekesari in the city of Kesaria. Kesaria, which is going to rise. And to a large degree, the Gemara says by Kesaria that when Kesaria was prominent, Yerushalayim declined. And when Yerushalayim would be dominant, Kesaria declined. And kind of like Esau and Yaakov's symbiotic relationship, that's what we're going to find between Kesaria and Yerushalayim. So it's all the more fitting and appropriate that, the, that Kesaria would be the first point of this great revolt. And here are the basic outlines of the story. The Greeks, and this is not the first time, they've been going at it. You know how it works in wars. When Archbishop Ferdinand was assassinated and hence broke out the World War I, that was not it. That was more, uh, the, the cliche we would say, is the straw that broke the camel's back. That's how most wars begin. It's not about the actual event. It was everything that came, in, came before it and what, that, what th this, this event triggers. So it, after a long series of antagonism between the Jews and their Greek neighbors, the Greeks come out this, outside the shul. And one of the Greeks mockingly presents a bird. And the bird is being held up as a Mitzayra bird, as a bird that's, that's connected with Tsaras. 
And the point of the mockery was, you guys, you Jews, you started off life, you left Egypt because you were Mitzurah, you were the lepers, as it were, of the Egyptian world. And now we got you. We in, we in Caesarea inherited you. We don't want you. It's, let's say it's an early version of an anti-Semitic calumny. And the, the Jews are inside, and it's hard to take this kind of abuse. And one of the kids, because, you know, youth are hotheads a lot of the time. You ever notice that? Uh, right? One of, the, one, of the kid, one of the youth in the shul can't take it anymore. So he storms outside the, sh- the, the shul to go fight the Greek. But he doesn't realize it was a trap, very carefully laid. It's not just one Greek who's waiting outside, but it's an entire ambush. And a bloodbath commences, with, beginning with the youth, and then others came to, tr- to come to, to his aid, and uh, the, the Greeks are prepared. They ultimately come and st- stampede into the shul itself. They steal Sifrei Tyra, and a battle breaks out in Caesarea. And uh, it gets very bad. And at one point, a group of Jews goes to the local um, Nitziv, you remember the Nitzivim, this one is named Floris, uh, the Nitzivim were the local Roman governors, and they go to the Nitziv Floris, who's located in Sebastia, one of Herod's great uh, fortress cities. Uh, what is it, where, where's the location of Sebastia? It played a central role earlier in history, anybody remember? Shomron. What used to be the capital of the Northern Kingdom was, is now Sebastia, and which is more or less just inland, due east of Caesarea, and they appealed to Floris and Sebastia. I mean, they were set up. It was an absolute ambush, and they, they want order. Romans, please, you've got to help us against these, uh, these, these, these crooked Greeks. I mean, you realize that there's not a lot of unity here. The Greeks are subject to the Roman Empire. The Romans are soldiers, but they don't identify necessarily with the Greek population or with the Shomroni population or all these different groups. But the local people expect some kind of law and order. Help us, Florus. And his response was to take the Jews and to throw them in prison. So talk about blaming your victim. It will not be the last time in history that we find that, that we'll get massacred and then punished for it. It's the classic scapegoat. No, no, on escape. Who's escaping whom? The Jews. By going to prison? Well, it's kind of like this. There's, I'm sure you've heard of like some mafia story, a mafia movie classic, where all the mafia wants to kill the guys. Yeah, I hear, but it doesn't work that way here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just giving you, I'm giving you just the overview. What happens is they're imprisoned, and that inflames passions all across the country, and a full-scale revolt breaks out. That's why I call it the the, the Merida Gadol, the Great Revolt, because you know this is one step too far. The it, the con- the conflict spirals out of control, bloodshed virtually everywhere you go. At one point, Flores breaks, uh, breaks into the uh, base of Mikdash, into the Otsara Kodesh, the Holy Treasury, and, fe- and steals 17 silver talons, like a fortune, uh, from the, from the base of Mikdash. As everything starts to unfold, uh, at one point, our, uh, one of our people in power who has some, some influence, Bereniki, We've met her. Before, we've seen her before. The daughter of Agrippus the first. She, um, she, unlike her brother Agrippus the second, who's a Russia, she protests and she tries to help the Jews with whatever uh, protectia, whatever uh, connection she still has in high places. Um, she's just finished. The scene is like this. She just took a thirty-day vow of Nazirus. So she, um, she, she's, she's uh, in a certain state of spiritual of, of spiritual holiness. Uh, and she comes to Floris and she says, please, you have to stop this before, before worse things happen. Um, at this point, you remember the last time he mocked her because she's walking barefoot according to Halacha? That was what we talked about yesterday. At this point, he just ignores her. Uh, and then he proceeds to turn on the Jews in his presence and start to slaughter them. And she realizes that she's next. That he doesn't, he, not only is he not paying attention to her, but he sees her as just a lowly Jew, and so she flees for her life. Uh, it's an outright war. And she runs to her brother's palace, Agrippus II, for, 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 uh, for refuge. <clears throat> Before we get into the details leading up to Horban, let's talk about the Horban. Yes. Oh, okay. so it's like Same place, and there's an Arab village today called Sebastian. 
Right, and you need to go visit there, you need an army escort. On my website, the, oh not, it's not the main picture, but one of the, I think, I think um, one, of, one of the pages, <laughs> the main l l lead picture is me guiding Shomron and Sebastian's in the background. No, it's Sebastian. Same place, Hainuach. The first base of Mikdash was destroyed because of Avodazara, Shvichus Damim, Gilearayos. Fair enough, fair enough. But the causes were clear, no uncertain terms. There's an additional explanation. We neglected the Shemitah year. The Nevi'im were upfront about it. They warned us. It was a shock, but not a surprise, if that's conceivable. Meaning, people were in denial. That was the shock part of it. But when it actually unfolded, they said, aha, this is what they keep telling us is going to happen, is now happening. Okay, that hap that, that, that's the way, it, the way it goes. Now, the Khurban, the causes, the explanation for it, it's very different. We don't have prophecy. The Shekhinah's presence is not clear to everybody, it's not manifold to everybody. Um, and there's some ambiguity as much as we know famously that the cause of the destruction of the Second Temple is what? Uh, the opposite of the Sinas gratuitous hatred. But what that means and how it manifests is a little bit ambiguous. And actually, I'm going to cite you a few sources. This is, I think, pretty important to know. Um, because I'll give several explanations for the destruction of the Second Temple. And I think the reason for it is that because it's not entirely clear, a lot's been going wrong, wrong for a long time, but what the, exact, what the actual catalyst was is shrouded in mystery. So let's do a very, very brief survey of some of the explanations. Uh, let's say we'll start with the basic and the most familiar, the most famous, Yushalmi Yuma tells us that it's true. There were a lot of Jews who toiled in Torah in these days, which is a great thing. And we've, we've met some of the superlative figures, Shammai Hillel and Shammai, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and a whole list of others. Uh, and they, only, they were only the leadership. We haven't talked about the masses. The, most of the Jews were good, you want to call them Pharisees, whatever, whatever the term, good mitzvah-keeping Jews. They were careful in mitzvahs, and they were, they were makbid and trumos and maestros in tithing their produce. Uh, the Gemara goes on and says, they possessed kol midatova, they had excellent personal qualities, and then the Gemara says, here was their downfall. They loved money, and they hated one another gratuitously. Now, who hated whom? Not everybody. Never do we find any place in Chazal uh, that the notion that the Chachamim, the great leaders, the Torah sages, hated anybody, hated one another, or hated other Jews. Um, as I said before, when I was growing up in the Reform movement, they loved to play that one up. They said, oh, and the Orthodox hated the Reform, kind of a thing. By the way, the official line of the subject, Orthodox don't hate Reform. We're not supposed to. We have to live with Kamocha, goes to every Jew. We reject the system of life. But that's not the same thing as hating. Not seen as Rabbi, once, once the Muslims say that, once the, I just think our time, say, you're no longer allowed to marry into a reform or conservative. Which nobody said. Which no one has said yet. Yeah, but that's not hating them. But say that they were... No, 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 that's not where I'm going. Say that they were to say that. That means that they're no longer part of the Jewish people and thus you don't have the rights of God for their That's why it's hard to imagine that. That would be changing something so fundamental. The definition of who, of a, who is a Jew. As long as you can trace your lineage to matrilineal descent, you can trace it to your mother... I, I haven't heard anybody even talk about such a concept, but I don't know. It, it's hypothetical. Hard, hard to speculate. What is Sinas Chinam? Uh, the Gemara tells us it's tantamount to the three major sins. It's like idolatry, it's like blood murder, and it's like all of the sins of immodesty. Um, the story is told, it's so familiar that I'm not going to go into all the details of Kamtsa Bar Kamtsa. Uh, it takes place at some time during an, an unspecified exact time, but sometime during this period where in the end we see with all the various characters in the story, the protagonists, the Chachamim who are standing by not saying anything, that it seems that everybody was at fault for what, uns what unfolded there, what spiraled out of control. We do know the end result was that Nero, the Caesar's wrath was kindled um, and that 
everybody should have done something to minimize all the hatred. But now, hatred is probably not a good translation. When we talk about sinas chinam, do you know what? This is coming up in the second parak of Makos. Has anybody gotten there yet in Yashir? I don't think so. We're all, we're all holding to the first parak. But it, we're going to come to a very uh, much more specific definition of what hatred is, and it's not what most of us think of. Hatred, hatred is too strong of a word. The Gemara says anybody who hasn't spoken to another, to his fellow, to his chaver for three days. That's called hatred. Oh my. Meaning, they're still on a relatively high level, higher level than we, use, we, we think of when we, uh, when we think about human inter- interaction. And if somebody is not in speaking terms for three days, that's called hatred. That's pretty mild. So the accusation is strong, but the sin is relatively uh, weak, as it were. But a Kaddish Baruch Hu expects more from Klal Yisrael. Um, the commentators, I'm quoting Rabbeinus and Ibishetz, but many speak about this. The chinam means that there was no justification. They just didn't speak for three days. Uh, the main source of hatred were the ignorant, were the Ameha Aretz, literally the people of the earth who were frustrated because they didn't have Torah themselves and they resented usually the Chachamim who did have Torah. Does that sound in any way familiar? It's such yeah. a typical human impulse. Do you know how much rabbi hatred there is out there? Do you know how much orthodox hatred there is out there? And how this explains a lot of it? It's simply feelings of being threatened. Hey, these are the guys supposedly being the better Jews, not knowing all these things that I probably should know, and I don't. So one common psychological response to that is to hate the person who embodies that which you feel you should be, and this kind of gets you off the hook. If they're really crooked, evil, nasty, wife-abusing, wife eight-year-old girls spitting, uh, what are other things that they, you know, that they attribute to all, all Orthodox people, then I don't have to be one of those people. And, um, and that's really the source of ulti- ultimate sinas chinam. It's the ignorant hating this, the, the, the knowledgeable. Um, and they channel their resentment and their jealousy onto the Talmud Chachamim. Um, yeah, very, very relevant. Do you know that the temple won't be rebuilt until we fix all of these qualities? Got a lot of sinas chinam out and about and prevalent in our days. Famously, Rav Yecheskel of Kozmir uh, teaches that the Basin Mikdash will be rebuilt when the Jews exercise ahavas chinam. Uh, that's become almost a slogan nowadays, but I think he's the first to really use the expression where we just love one another gratuitously, no reason, just cause. Um, but that's not the only reason. And there's a few more sources I want to share with you. Maybe they're familiar, maybe not. But there's several explanations given for the second temple's destruction. Gemara Nadarim, in the name of Rav, we learn, Lo birchu When Klal Yisrael said their morning blessings, we've got the, some of the, among the only blessings that are diaraisa are birka satara, who say them in the morning. And um, they didn't do this which can't mean what it sounds like. So the Mepharshim, I'm quoting the Maharal of Prague here, uh, say, he says, no, of course they said it. Uh, you know, they were Chazal. Of course they said the bracha. They didn't have the proper kavana, which is also something that we should be working on ourselves. And I'm going through this because we're supposed to be learning lessons from history. If we're not, let's say, saying Birkus Torah, and we're not, or we're saying it, but we're not with proper kavana, we're then perpetuating the continued destruction of the temple. So we should take muster from all of this. So, uh, yeah, they didn't have the right kavana. The Maral says when we say nosein haTorah, we're supposed to have kavana. Hashem gives us the Torah, and it's the Torah is the mechanism for dveikus. I cling to Hashem by learning His words and by acting on His mitzvos. That's what I do, and I have to cherish that. It's precious, and that should be my kavana when I'm saying the brachos. And and Maharal says really what this gemara is pointing to is a general neglect and deep understanding of what the Torah, what we're doing with the Torah, what our function in this world. The way that Maharal very eloquently says it, he says, without the foundation, without the roots, the tree withers. And that's what Chazal are explaining here. In the Gemara and Yuma, we hear a contrast. The first temple, this is very important, the first temple, the Jews transgressed Begalui. They tra- transgressed openly, brazenly, shockingly. A-, a prophet there is warning you and telling you not to do it, and you're going to still do it? Yeah, that was the first temple. And in the end, their, dis- their punishment, their destruction, and everything about it was completely revealed. 
Yirmiyahu, for example, and others famously revealed to them, yeah, this Gullus is 70 years. So you knew the cause and you knew the results all very upfront, which is so much easier. If you're a parent, the best thing you can do in parenting when your kid deserves a punishment, explain why they're being punished and what the end of the punishment is. The worst thing you do as a parent is leave a dangling threat something that's just hanging there. You just wait till your father comes home or you, you know, I'll get you. And, and, and the child becomes terrorized, not knowing what follows, especially if the parent has a history for uh, harsh punishments and you don't spell, spell out what the punishment is. That's much worse. Not knowing is much worse than knowing. Um, the fact that in the first temple, the openness was so clear what they did wrong, it actually made it so much easier logically for them to recognize their sins and then make tshuva properly. So the second temple, totally different experience. And you realize we're all part of this still. As the temple, insofar as the temple's not rebuilt, we're still uh, an extension of the Chorban Sheni. So now in the second temple, the Gemara, the Gemara famously says they practiced, they made their mistakes, they did their sins, beseser. Quietly, they hid it. On the surface, they showed, let's say, a veneer of frumkite. They seemed to be really great religious on the outside, but deep down, they pretended, uh, like outside, they pretended that they loved everybody, but deep down, they harbored feelings of hatred, gratuitous hatred. Um, and because they, they sinned in a way that was not open, their end also has, and our end, has not been revealed. And we don't know 100%, and that's going to be, that's when we finish this class at the very end of the year, we'll talk about the end of days. Uh, there's a lot of deliberate mystery about how the Messianic era is going to unfold. That's all a part of this. The first one was Begalui, and the second one was Besacer, hidden. Um, stay tuned, in a, probably within a week or two, after Hanukkah, we'll get to a fantastic episode that I'm going to pick up exactly on this, on this point. Um, with the story about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and, um, and contrasting the first temple, the second temple, the openness of the first temple and the, the, secret, the secretiveness of the second temple's destruction and our legacy till today. Um, the Maharsha says um, the sin of the second temple was that the people feared people more than they feared Hashem. And even though in the first temple, they, <laughs> the Jews disregarded both people and the Shem, but in a sense, the hypocrisy of the second temple, that they cared what other people thought, but they didn't really care what Hashem thought, that was worse. And that's why Hashem has concealed the date of the final redemption. Um, other explanations, the Maran Shabbos brings Ula. Ula explains they lacked Boshes Pani. They weren't, they didn't have shame. We're supposed to have shame. That's, that's a good, healthy uh, reaction. A person who's completely brazen, out there, uh, and so on, not a good quality. Rabbi Hanina says, the Jews didn't rebuke one another. Margitin says, if a serpent is coiled around a kid, listen to this. This is, this is very, very relevant. A serpent is coiled around a keg of honey. The keg sometimes has to be smashed in order to destroy the serpent. Get the metaphor? The serpent here seems to be 200 years of sectarian life, of stukim and baitusim and greatly Hellenized groups of people left and right, Christians and Essenes and all the rest of them, and it's impossible to shake them off. Vying for power, buying off the Kohen Gadol position, uh, betraying us to the Roman authorities, whichever authorities will help them, and um, nothing could shake them off the keg of honey, Sometimes in order to get rid of the serpent, you have to destroy the keg of honey itself. And that's how the Gemara Gitin explains that the Hashem itself destroys the base of Mikdash, the ultimate sweet vessel, the keg of honey, in order to get rid of the uh, Hellenists and the Tzedukim and the Edomim. Remember Edom in the form of Antipater and Herod and Herod's family. Mark this in history. It's a brilliant explanation. From exactly this point in history, we find that these groups lack their raison d'etre. The minute the Jews have no sovereignty, there's no power, so there's no power struggle, these groups, almost every one of them with one exception, disappear from the face of history. 
This is the end of the Tzedukim. It's the end of the Baitusim. Never again we're going to hear about the Essenes. They all grow, ex- they all grow ex- extinct the minute there's no base of Mikdash and no political structure to, uh, for the Jews to fight over. The one group that still lasts is the Christian group who define themselves no longer as Jewish. And they, they turn to the world at large. They're not even identifying in this area. And they, they vanished in history. I'm almost done with the explanations for the Chorban. In Avos Rabbi Nassan, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai teaches three sins cause the Balabatim, the ordinary people, uh, to be given over to the uh, Malchus, to the evil authorities. Um, here he, he highlights lending money with interest, not paying public pledges, uh, and tax evasion. Ultimately, a person, a rich man who evades paying taxes, the poor people have to pay for him. They're going to collect their taxes eventually. They'll collect from the poor if the rich people evade. Um, and the final explanation is something uh, in, in the Gemara and Baba, Baba Metzia, Rabbi Yochanan teaches, Rabbi Yochanan Bar teaches, that Yerushalayim and the people in Yerushalayim insisted on din, which is good, we, ha- we need justice, but they didn't go, what's called lifnim mishiras din, they didn't go beyond the letter of the law. And had they gone beyond the letter of the law, Rabbi Yochanan seems to be indicating that everything, all of the previous sins would have been reversed. So Tosfos, on the daf, short Tosfos, asks a famous kasha and says, what? What does it mean? They didn't go, they, they didn't, the, we, we know that the, they were, the temple was destroyed for all these other reasons. Had they gotten Lifni Mishra Sadin, that would have saved them. So famous Teruts is brought by the brother of Chaim of Volozhin, is Rav Shlomo Zaman of Volozhin. Um, he says, the real reason for the Chorban is Sinas Chinam, and they didn't say the Bracha, and the Torah, and the, all these other reasons we've been talking about. What Rabbi Yochanan's teaching is, is all of this was reversible. Had we, we, despite all of these failings, had the Jews gone beyond the letter of the law, had we loved for no reason, just cause, and had we taken care of one another, we could have turned the whole, turned all of history around. Because then what would have happened is Hashem follows us. So if we treat people, we give to them even if they don't deserve. So Shem says, I'm going to give them too. I'm going to give to them too. They don't deserve it. The temple should be destroyed. But I'll go, as it were, measure for measure. And that never happened. And so civil war breaks out between Jews everywhere. Uh, excuse me, between Jews and the other, function, other, other areas of the, of, of the empire. Excuse me, I, I, I've introduced this. And now civil war breaks out between Jews. Because the Jews are not of all, all of one mind in terms of how to go out fighting this war. And this also should chill us to our bones as we look around our world today and we realize, right, we also have lots of different, you know, two Jews, three opinions. Uh, we have lots of different approaches to how to deal with modernity, to how to uh, deal with the many, many conflicts in which we find ourselves, right wing, left wing, and everything else. And... Um, in Yerushalayim, that's most manifest. As the city is divided, the upper city, what we think of as the Jewish quarter area today, that's where many tzedukim, especially Kohanim, families of Kohanim, remember the, the Beit, Kip, uh, Beit uh, Katros and others are situated in the upper city. Uh, um, the the, the Knaim, the, 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 uh, the, the Zealots, um, seize the area of the Harabais, of the Temple Mount. In the lower city, what we call the city of David today, the poor are focused mostly. There are all kinds of sects. Edom is there. Other nations are there. And effectively in Yushalayim, the Romans come in and make uh, besiege the city, but do almost nothing. They watch from the outskirts as the Jews in, and the other sects within the city start fighting among one another. And of course, Agrippus II, who's on the Roman side, and the Romans are all sitting there like this. Because the Jews are doing their enemies dirty work for them. Because they're all killing one another. When they're done, we'll move in and kill the rest of them. Right? They're, be, they're perfectly happy to let us uh, battle it out inside. And that's the dynamic of the war for the early period. The um, fighting doesn't just focus in Yerushalayim as far as Syria and down in Egypt and all around Eretz Israel. One place, interestingly, manages to resist Sipori. Uh, was a major city. We'll hear more of Tipori. It will be one of the seats of the Sanhedrin. Tipori resists and actually makes a truce with Romans and is one of the few safe havens 
during this otherwise uh, um, embattled period. At one point, the Jews defeat the Romans. Uh, there's a general named um, Cessius who's humiliated, and they send him back to Rome with the, his tail between his legs, you know, uh, feeling bad. But you know, it's a Pyrrhic victory. The expression means that you win the battle, you lose the war, because you don't insult Roman honor like that, handing them a defeat like that, without expecting a major onslaught of revenge. And the Romans will not be uh, will not go down lightly. Um, Nero is still the Caesar. I, we talked about Nero, and I talked about his end, how, according to us, he converts. But at the time, he's still the Caesar, and he sends his general Vespasian. It's a general Vespasian, but pay attention to these names. They're going to they're be very, very important. Uh, Vespasian's job is to go back and finish the job, get these Jews, take no prisoners, as it were. Vespasian enters Akko in the north with his forces. Um, he is accompanied by another general, his son Titus, all important names, from the south. Titus comes with his troops from Egypt, and they go, taking their time, beginning a methodical, slow capture and slaughter and destruction of Jewish city after Jewish city, most of them defenseless. Uh, there's some bigger cities, mostly in the north, Yodfat, Gamla, Gushchalav, Tiberia, Tiberias, that are fortified, and Jews take refuge in size, in, in, inside the cities. Um, many escape initially to the <coughs> fortress of Yodfat, where I almost took you this year, and then that was vetoed, and we went wine tasting instead. Um, that's okay. You can you can you can go, you can go to Yodfat anytime, but who gets to go wine tasting? Oh no, reverse that. Uh, never mind. The anyway, was that? Why didn't we? Wasn't my choice. Wine tasting. Wine tasting. Ilan, come on. Okay. Anyway, Yodfat, which is in the northwest of the country, um, and many take refuge, including a fighter by his own account named Yosef ben Matisyahu, coming full circle today. Okay, Yosef ben Matisyahu. Right. So now Josephus himself is in the story. Right. So he goes. He's into Yodfat. And Vespasian surprises them and lays siege to the whole area of Yodfad, which is a fortified city. It lasts over a month. Uh, the Romans are genocidal. They, again, as we said, take no prisoners. They don't want any survivors. Um, and they slowly and carefully begin to massacre every Jew as they, as they very, again, gradually start to encroach on the Jewish fortress. It's a process. I'm going to save the horrific descriptions, but uh, 40 men hide in a cave, among them Yosef ben Matisyahu, uh, and Josephus himself, by his own story, he convinces them to draw lots, and he explains, better is it to die nobly uh, at our own hands than to fall into the hands of the Romans. Does this sound eerily familiar to anybody? It's the same story, almost verbatim as Masada. The different protagonists. There it was Elazar ben Yair in Masada. But the, the story is suspiciously parallel. One wonders if maybe Josephus ran out of uh, creative writing ideas. Um, but in any case, that's how he tells it in Yodfat. He, um, interestingly, as they draw lots and then pick, it's not mass suicide, it's mass murder because they kill off one another. And then it comes down to the last two of the 40 men to survive are him and one other man. And Josephus. Um, turns to the other man and says, you know, maybe the two of us should survive. And the man says, good idea. And they do. And it's shocking. And you wonder, he's writing this about himself, how is he going to make himself sound good? You just, that's just not a story you come out looking, smelling, smelling particularly clean from. Uh, but he goes out, they surrender, and Vespasian and Titus, father and son, are both there, and they're impressed with him. And he says, they imprisoned me with big day kabo, with clothes of honor. And he writes himself, he defends his actions, his defection to the other side. He said that he received a voice in the, in the post-prophetic times, when there's no prophecy, Josephus, by his own telling, received a voice from on high telling him that the, the Romans were destined to win and that he needed to survive to reveal the, the truth of history. Uh, so that's, that's Josephus' whole reason for, um, for, 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 for living, for everything. Um, last point for today, the Romans continue. There are massive massacres, including on the sea in Jaffa, Yafo, and Tiveria. The Jews are, for a brief period, successful in Gamla. 
they, they managed to injure Vespasian very dramatically. Anybody been up to Gamla? There's a, when you, when you run up the mountain, there is, you go to a very steep peak, and then there's a sharp drop off. And Josephus describes the end in Gamla as the Jews retreating from the Romans are basically backed up, not to the wall, but to the ravine, to the end of the world, and they drop off the edge to their deaths. Uh, in Gamla, and it's, it's a terrible, terrible period, tragedy upon tragedy, and um, in Gush Chalav, which is north of Tzfat, there's a standoff, and in the middle of the knife, the leader, named Yochanan ben Levi, and others escape to Jerusalem, um, and they come into the city of Jerusalem, and now they're, oh good, another partisan fighting group, just what we need to, with all the diversity and all the civil war among the Jews, they come into Jerusalem with their own idea of how to fight the Romans, so you got Yochanan ben Levi, you got another group headed by Shimon bar Giora, uh, the first fighting group in modern Israel, in my, before there was an Israel, was named after this bar Giora. There's a settlement named bar Giora, uh, not far from Beitar. Bar Giora. And then another named Hanan ben Hanan. The Jews in Yerushalayim are mostly divided by ego and power struggles, very Hellenized, very influenced. <laughs> And this is the backdrop, this is the setting as we approach um, the darkest chapter in all of history, which uh, now we are off uh, because the afternoon schedule is changing for Hanukkah, so we will resume Bezrash Hashem a week from Wednesday, a week from tomorrow. Oh, I will be back by then. I'll run in at that point. Okay. Second verse. Second verse.